G'day listeners, welcome to the Braintainment Podcast. This show is an interesting mix between pop culture and personal development with a very wide range of guests that come on the show for a chat from the sports space, philosophy, health and fitness, entertainment and everything in between. The idea is to entertain or to educate you guys and hopefully sometimes both, either through just myself or with the guests that come on the show as we explore different ideas and concepts and have some really interesting conversations. The mission with the Brain Taming Podcast is to raise a million dollars, and that all starts with uh, building an audience and a platform. So thank you for tuning in. Our goal is to raise a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and family and be sure to subscribe. With that said, strap in and enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very important episode of the Braintainment podcast. Today is a conversation I've been really excited to have for a while now, and I know you're going to get a lot out of this chat today. I'm joined by Dr. Judd Brewer, Executive Medical Director of Behavioral Health at ShareCare. He is the Associate Professor in Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University, Research Affiliate for MIT, and has created drjud.com based on 20 years of experience researching how our brains form negative behavior patterns, bad habits, and addictions, and the specific techniques needed to create lasting change, as well as becoming a renowned expert around anxiety, which is especially relevant at a time like this, of course, which we'll unpack today. His YouTube videos have amassed millions of views. His website has a library of fantastic content I highly encourage you to check out uh, and he's featured on all the big big podcasts in this space including Impact Theory with Tom Bilyeu, The Rich Roll Podcast with Rich Roll, London Real, School of Greatness with Lewis Howes and many many more. So I couldn't think of anyone better to be having this chat today um, than with me than this guy. So with that said, thanks for carving out some time and, and welcome Dr. Judd. Thanks for having me. Now, there is a lot I want to cover with you today, um, and I really appreciate you carving out the time. So we'll dive straight into it. Let's talk about anxiety, particularly at a time like uh, right now. Uh, It's a very important conversation. So to start with, could you tell us what's actually happening biologically when we feel anxious? What's going on in our body and our brain? Yeah, it's a good question. So you know, our brains are set up for survival as, as best we can, and there are these natural fear responses that help us survive. You know, if you step out into the street, you almost get hit by a bus. Uh, You jump back onto the sidewalk and that fight or flight response, uh, you know, literally can save our lives. But at the same time, that fear response that comes right after that, where we say, oh no, I almost got hit by a bus, helps us (laughs) learn, hey, you should look both ways before crossing the street. And that, so that fear piece is normal, but when that is coupled with uncertainty, that leads to anxiety and that uncertainty comes in the form of, you know, not knowing stuff. So, you know, think of that survival mechanism as, as the old part of our brain. There's this newer part that helps us think and plan for the future. And the newer part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex needs accurate information. And it takes that information that's available right now. And it extrapolates based on previous experience into the future and says, okay, this is what happened in the past. This is the information I have right now. So let's plan for the future. Right now, we don't have a lot of accurate information. You know, pandemics like this have not happened in any of our lifetimes. Uh, Mm. So there's not a lot of accurate information. So you pair that fear response that's normal and adaptive with uncertainty. 
And our brain just starts spinning out in these what if scenarios. What about this? What if this happens? What if this happens? And that just starts to lead to worry, which then feeds anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the prefrontal cortex. And I think I've heard you talk before about, um, is it the blood leaving that part of the brain to other parts? Is it to, uh, to fuel your body in case of the fight or flight? Like what's actually happening there? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure that people know exactly, you know, all the the blood flow bits. Uh, one thing sure. we do know is that the brain is very highly regulated in terms of, you know, uh, making sure that it gets the amount of glucose and the amount of energy and the amount of blood flow that it needs. So there can be very small changes in uh, in blood flow, which can actually, and depending on how much oxygenated blood that's in there, for example, can be a marker of, of neuronal activity. And that's actually what we use to measure uh, brain function using functional MRI and, and things like that. So I think of it more as, you know, what are the what are the parts of the brain that go offline when we get stressed? And it looks like from the research that we know that the prefrontal cortex, think of it as the weakest, you know, youngest, weakest part of the brain. That's the first part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed out and we default back to our more habitual ways or even, you know, more survival brain mechanisms. Mm. So then outside, we'll dive into the the current situation that essentially everyone across the world's face right now with, with COVID-19. We'll dive into that shortly. But outside of this pandemic, what are some other culprits that um, in sort of a normal day to day cause us to feel so anxious, particularly in today's <laughs> world? <laughs> uh, we, could, we could list a number of them. Uh, I'm sure and, we could. And all of them generally are flavors of, uh, you know, of discomfort or, um, you know, just not having information, you know, uncertainty, let's put it in the general bucket of uncertainty. So when there's uncertainty about our job, for example, or uncertainty about our relationships, uh, or uncertainty about the environment or uncertainty about what's going to happen politically in somebody's country, all of those, those pieces, um, you know, that uncertainty, it doesn't matter where it's directed, can lead to that, you know, what if, what if, what if scenario, uh, which leads to worry. So do you, have you found in your experience, and I imagine you have, that uh, having this little bit of understanding, and we don't have to dive too much into the nitty gritty, but having some level of understanding of what's going on biologically, does that help people then go, okay, I'm having this response, this is what's going on, I can do something about this, as opposed to, not having any information and essentially being stuck in this, what is going, what is wrong with me? Why can't I think straight? Does that information help people move forward and and start to um, unwind? Yes. I think you're touching on something really important, which is knowing that a lack of information causes anxiety is a good place to start. And then basically that means knowing how our minds work. If we don't know how our minds work, how can we possibly work with our minds? So if we don't know that lack of information or uncertainty is leading to worry and anxiety, how can we possibly work with them? We're just going to be running around, you know, doing things and, and thinking that, you know, what we just did might be fixing our anxiety when in fact it could be perpetuating it or just distracting us for a bit. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think it's a really important point. And 
Um, just for a little context, that's, that's half the reason behind this particular podcast with Brain Taming is to encourage people to study the brain, um, not necessarily to become super nerdy about it, but just to give get a little bit of information to arm you for when you do feel anxious. I know for myself, without sort of derailing too much, um, that was one of the key ingredients in being able to manage times of, of anxiety and, and even a bout of depression was just knowing what's actually going on and then having a sense of empowerment, um, I guess, to do something to do something about it. Um, for yourself, how did you initially get into this line of work? Was that something you were always fascinated with? Did you have your own challenges? How did that all come about? <laughs> well, it's a good question. And I, I would encourage everyone to be super nerdy about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I think the brain is fascinating. And really in fact, <laughs> uh, and in fact, you know, I, I think I came upon this uh, you know, ever since I was a kid, I was always interested in how things worked. So I, you know, when I got a new toy, I would destroy it to figure out how it worked, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that spread forward, you know, in, in high school, I was always interested, you know, in, for some reason I was, I wasn't very good at physics, but I loved the idea of physics, you know, where it's like, <laughs> wow, you know, you can, you know, all these things about that, what makes things move and what, you know, inertia and momentum and, and friction and things like that. And in college, I started getting more interested in just understanding how our brains work. So for example, I remember being at my brother's wedding and his, uh, his wife got really sick the day after they got married. And I was thinking this could not be a coincidence, you know, she's fine right up through the wedding, right? Up, but as soon as they went on their honeymoon and she could relax, you know, she got, she got really sick. And so I started really wanting to understand, you know, what's this connection between our experience and the brain and, you know, went to graduate school to study. I did this MD PhD program where I could really study the connection between stress and the brain and the immune system. And at the same time, I realized I didn't know anything about how my own mind worked. And so I started practicing meditation and mindfulness practices so that I could start to see my own habit patterns and work with my own stress and see how I was, you know, causing myself uh, to be, you know, more nervous than I needed to be. Yeah, I'm sure anyone listening could relate to some extent um, that how the the psychological side of things can then play out in really physical symptoms, whether it's, you know, um, feeling unwell or headaches, uh, whatever it might be. You touched on mindfulness and meditation uh, there. Let's just unpack that a little bit. So in terms of what to do um, with that stress or that anxiety, what are some of the, the main, um, I suppose, disciplines or ideas that you found have had the biggest impact to, to feel better fast um, and, and start to, uh, I suppose, adapt a more uh, resilient mindset? Yeah, we've been. My lab's been studying this for a couple of decades now, and it actually started with doing some research with addictions when I was in residency training, training to be an addiction psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And you know, long story short, I found you know in one of our first studies, we found that mindfulness training, so training people to bring us awareness to what's happening, so for example, cravings. And bring this attitude of curiosity instead of judging their cravings as, oh, no, this is bad. I need to make this go away, which is the typical reaction. Right. They, we taught them to really bring awareness in and get curious about what the craving feels like and realize that you know, these cravings are sensations, they're thoughts, and these things drive their behaviors. 
Uh, for example, you know, I remember I had a patient come into my office one day who wanted to quit smoking. And he, he said, you know, doc, I feel like my head's going to explode if I don't smoke. And so mm. we kind of mapped out what head exploding feels like from moment to moment to moment. We've, we went over to my whiteboard. I remember drawing this line on the whiteboard with him as he was describing his sensations and they got worse, you know, stronger and stronger and stronger. And then they plateaued and then they started to fall off and he got this big wide eyed expression because typically when they, plat you know, when they got really strong, he would just smoke a cigarette. And he realized right in that moment, not only that these were sensations that he could be with, but that also he didn't have to smoke. He could just, you know, notice these sensations and they would come and go and that he could actually just be with them rather than doing something to make them go away. That's really what the crux of mindfulness is about. So here, you know, we did a study with alcohol and cocaine use disorder, found that mindfulness was as good as gold standard treatment. We did a study with smoking cessation, found that mindfulness was five times better than gold standard treatment. Recently, we even published a paper with an app-based mindfulness training called Craving to Quit for Smoking, where we could actually target specific brain regions and show in a randomized controlled trial that only with mindfulness training, we could target these brain regions that get activated when people get caught up in craving, they would deactivate and that deactivation would predict clinical outcomes, would predict the amount that people would reduce their smoking. Interestingly, we had discovered this brain region as part of this uh, brain network called the default mode network that had been discovered about a, a decade earlier. We found this when we started studying experienced meditators about 10 years ago, and we found that they were not only not activating this network of brain regions. So this it gets activated when we get caught up in craving, when we're worrying about things, when we're regretting things. They were not only not activating it, they were deactivating it relative to novices, people that didn't know how to meditate. And that really formed the basis of, of 10 years of research for us to really dive into this, uh, this brain network uh, to see what was actually happening. And we found that it's, it's really that act of getting caught up in somebody's experience. So getting caught up in worry when somebody's perseverating or worrying about the future, getting caught up in that craving, uh, that that brain region can, is specifically targeted by mindfulness training. And as people learn mindfulness, even through an app, they can specifically target that brain region and uh, you know, decrease the amount that they will smoke, for example. Uh, we've done studies with eating, 40% reduction in craving-related eating. We just finished a study with an app called Unwinding Anxiety. Get this. We did two studies, one with, with uh, anxious physicians. We got a 57% reduction in clinically wow. valid anxiety symptoms. And then we repeated this in a randomized control trial of people with generalized anxiety disorder. These are the Olympians of worry. They're really good at worrying. <laughs> I know. We got a, yeah, we got a 63% reduction in these uh, clinically validated anxiety scores. So here you, you can see that wherever these mechanisms are at play, when somebody gets caught up in a craving, when somebody gets caught up in you know, an urge to eat or when somebody gets caught up in worry, mindfulness can target uh, each of these because there's this core underlying mechanism. That is super interesting. And I imagine um, a, a large part of that is training, right? And, and for someone listening that potentially hasn't explored that practice to any extent, the first, uh, whether it's a meditation or first approach to mindfulness, it that immediate satisfaction may not come. So I imagine there's I imagine there is a process or, or a period of time that needs to unfold for this to really take effect. Would that be a fair assessment? It Over time, people do get better, yes. 
And I would say there were some quick wins for people. Okay. So for example, uh, in you know even in my clinic, when somebody gets referred to me for anxiety, for example, I'll give you an example of a, a patient that I've been seeing for a couple um, for a couple of months now. The first thing I do is I just map out these habit loops that they have with them, help them see how their brain is working. So for example, this guy comes in, he was referred for anxiety, and he started talking about how he had panic attacks when he would uh, drive on the highway. And then that led to him being afraid of driving on the highway, so where, where he would barely drive at all. And even driving a couple of kilometers to my office had left him shaky. You know, and as he walked in the door, I could see that he was anxious. So the first thing we did right in that, you know, in, in 15, within 15 minutes, I helped him map out the trigger, the behavior and the result. So what was the trigger for his, uh, his worry? So whenever he had a thought about driving, then the behavior would be to avoid driving. And then the result was that, you know, he had this brief relief in the fact that he didn't have to get on the highway, but at the same time, it was leading to a bunch of anxiety and the fact that he couldn't drive. And just that understanding, just helping him map out his mind was a, was a real win for him. You know, it was a big aha moment where he could go home and start mapping that out a lot. So it doesn't take a ton of training. Yeah. It really takes some directed, uh, you know, instruction to help people start to map these processes out. And then they get excited and they start doing it a lot. They start mapping it and then uh, after that, they can start to bring in some of these specific mindfulness practices that can help them work with worry, for example, or cravings or other things. Yeah, that is huge. And I suppose just, I mean, even just um, hearing you talk, and I've dived into your work a lot over the last couple of weeks, uh, it seems like the conversation around anxiety, but then also addiction and habits, which you, of course, have a, a lot of experience in, they seem to potentially overlap a little bit. Um, and do you think that that plays a role? To, so, for example, um, if someone's been anxious for a long period of time, that that could be all they know, and it's almost a habit for them. When, and there potentially could be the, a certain cue, whether it is driving on the highway, and and everyone, well, not everyone, but a lot of people have their their one vice, I suppose, that triggers them. Um, have you found that anxiety, addictions, habits, they all kind of interlap? They do. So there's a core mechanism here that uh, that they all share and it, it goes back to the survival mechanism so as i mentioned earlier you know you you walk out into the street you almost get hit and you you step back out on the sidewalk and you learn from that oh don't walk into the street you can map that out as a survival strategy it's called negative reinforcement it's been known forever you know eric kendall got the nobel prize back in the year 2000 showing that this is evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug, which only has 20,000 neurons. So if you map that out, you know, the trigger is you almost step into the street. The behavior is that you jump back. And then the reward is that you don't get killed. <laughs> <laughs> There's that core uh, negative reinforcement mechanism. Now, right. if you think of an addiction, you know, let's say stress is the trigger, you smoke a cigarette or you drink alcohol or whatever, there's the behavior and then you get that brief relief. Same mechanism at play for that addiction. Also true for eating, get stressed, you eat, you know, you feel better. Uh, that's also true. Now, interestingly, and a lot of people don't know this, I actually wrote an entire book about this that's coming out next year. Uh, anxiety can actually be a learned behavior in the same way. So a negative emotion like fear can trigger worry thinking as a behavior. And that worry thinking does one of two things or both at the same time. One is it distracts us from that negative emotion. And two is it makes us feel like we're in control, you know, because we're even if worry isn't getting us anywhere, at least we feel like we're doing something. Yes. 
Yes, I know that feeling well, unfortunately. <laughs> and I, I think people potentially could relate. So then just on addictions and habits, uh, I've heard you talk about uh, why Facebook is like heroin. <laughs> and I, fe- I, found this, I found this really fascinating. Could you, could you expand on that, what that means and, and why it's important to understand? Yes. Yeah. And I wrote a, a whole chapter about this in my first book uh, called The Craving Mind, where there are some research studies that have been done in the last five years or so, where people actually simulate Facebook feeds and simulate Instagram feeds in an fMRI scanner so they can measure brain activity as people are you know, viewing you know, basically Facebook feeds or viewing Instagram posts. So there's a great study done at UCLA where they found that uh, simulating adolescents' own Instagram feeds, so they took their own pictures, and the only manipulation they made was they gave some of the pictures a bunch of likes and some of the pictures just a few likes. And what they found was when you get a bunch of likes, that it activates this reward center in your brain called the nucleus accumbens. Now, this is the downstream recipient of dopamine, and this is the same uh, network of brain regions, the same pathway that gets activated with every known drug of abuse. So alcohol, heroin, cocaine, nicotine, apparently Facebook and Instagram um, <laughs> all activate this, this network. At the same time, in this Instagram study, they found that they were that participants were also activating a self-referential brain network this default mode network that I mentioned earlier. So here there's this link between reward and self, you know, cause they're, mm. cause they're, you know, they're thinking, Oh, I got a bunch of likes and there's this contracted caught up feeling that comes with that. Yeah. I think, um, again, unfortunately I can relate. And I'm, I'm sure many can that feeling of <laughs> t- taking time away from social media and then feeling this pull back towards it. It's funny. I heard you talk about this and, and I've heard others share their thoughts around this, this idea as well. Um, and I remember thinking, Oh, that applies to everyone else. I'm disciplined and I don't <laughs> fall for that. And then, and then I checked my, uh, what is it? The phone, the um, time on these apps uh, on a daily basis. And I was, I was shocked and I couldn't believe how much time I was actually spending on there. And then actually started to notice the feeling of intentionally uh, not diving in for that immediate dopamine hit um, and started to realize, wow, this is, uh, this is pretty powerful um, and potentially could become problematic. Um, It's crazy. Now I just wanted to just circle back a little bit to the smoking example that you gave um, and, then, and then the idea of becoming really mindful and in the moment. Um, and I think I heard you talk about a particular client or someone you were working with uh, and drawing their attention to the actual taste of, of the cigarette and realizing, I don't actually I don't actually like this very much at all. Could you talk us through that story? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I'm wondering, so, okay, let's geek out for a second on a little bit of neuroscience because this will give some Please background that will be relevant. So there's a part of our brain called the orbitofrontal cortex, and it is involved in the determination of how rewarding a behavior is and also storing that behavior. And the reason that it's important is because we're always given choices, you know, do A or B, you know, for example, eat uh, broccoli or chocolate, right? And so our brain is going to, it's going to determine which one is more rewarding. And then it's just going to naturally incline itself to do that, you know, the behavior that's more reward, rewarding. The reason that this is important is it kind of lays down habits. So we don't have to relearn 
every behavior every day. You know, imagine having to relearn how to walk and put on your clothes and make coffee and decide whether, you know, what type of coffee to drink every morning, all that stuff, you know, we'd be exhausted before noon. So that orbitofrontal cortex piece is really instrumental in deforming habits, but also changing habits because you have to uh, get an accurate and updated reward value of a behavior before it's ever going to change. Otherwise, we're just going to keep doing it habitually. So onto this, this story of, of smoking, what I have people do, and we've done this in our studies, and this is what I do clinically as well. Somebody comes into me and in, into my clinic and wants to quit smoking. What I do, the first thing I do is I say, okay, smoke. <laughs> <laughs> and they look at me like, what? I, you know, I, I came here to quit smoking and you're telling me to smoke. But I don't say just smoke habitually. I say, pay attention with each puff. What does it taste like? What does that smoke feel like as it going, goes in your mouth? What's it feel like going into your lungs? What does it smell like coming out of your mouth and all this stuff? And the reason I have them do that is that that helps their brain get accurate and updated information on how rewarding that cigarette is right now. Now, most of my patients and most of the folks in our clinical studies have started smoking at the age of 13 or so. And so they were facing very different things back then. Usually it was trying to be cool or rebel or whatever. And those were the rewards of smoking. They weren't paying as much attention to, you know, that it smoking actually doesn't taste very good. But when they're older and they're realizing that it's one of the worst things they can be doing for their health, they really are motivated to start paying attention. We can even build in specific functions, these, these craving tools into our apps and measure change in reward value over time. And it only takes about 10 to 15 times of somebody really paying attention to a cigarette to watch that reward value drop close to zero. And when that reward value drops, it's much easier to quit smoking. It's not about telling themselves or trying to force themselves to quit. It's about just saying, Ugh, <laughs> this doesn't taste very good. <laughs> much easier to do that way. Yeah, well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I suppose there's heaps of other examples outside of just smoking that you could draw your attention to and start to become mindful. One, to reduce your anxiety in the moment, which is obviously one um, one good byproduct, but then two, to start to realize, hey, on what I'm doing, this behavior doesn't actually serve me. Um, right. And I'm sure there's, there's a whole host of examples I could probably come up with. Yeah. One of well, if I you just, would, oh, yeah. I, I, just for example, you know, we've Please. done studies with people who overeat and they start mm -hmm. paying attention when they're, you know, eating beyond satiety, it doesn't actually feel very good. Or when they eat junk mm -hmm. food versus healthy food, doesn't feel very good. Or even, you know, when somebody is caught up in worry and they're planning something or worrying about something for the 17th time and they start to pay attention, <laughs> oh, it, that doesn't feel very good. Or that endless scrolling on, on social media, you know, so like you're saying, there are a gazillion different uh, examples. And the beauty of this is mindfulness brings all of these together because it only takes awareness to change that behavior. As you pay attention and you see that it's not rewarding, you start to become disenchanted and less excited to do it in the future, no matter what that behavior is. I love that so much. And I reckon awareness is such a good word. It's almost my favorite word. That and curiosity, which we've, we've touched on throughout this chat already. Being curious about something, um, I think is a good place to start to then, you know, uh, go down the rabbit hole of information to become empowered. But then having awareness, I think is the easiest way to explain mindfulness. And it's something that I like to encourage 
people to do is, is, is meditate and, and these different types of practices. But for someone starting from zero, um, I think a, an easy place to conceptualize what we're talking about is just becoming aware. Would you say that's a really good step one for someone to start with uh, unwinding anxiety, moving the right direction for good habits? Is that a good place to, uh, to start is just to become aware of what they're doing? It is. And I would say, I'm glad you you know, keep bringing forward this idea of curiosity. They're actually, mm. let's geek out the, about this for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've, I've written about this. There are actually two types of curiosity. There's one called deprivation curiosity and one called interest curiosity. There's a guy, Jordan Littman, uh, a researcher who I think differentiated these back over 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago now. And the idea is, and you, you already touched on this, that information rabbit hole right? So our, our phones, our weapons of mass distraction are really good, uh, you know, things that pull us into these rabbit holes. We're like, oh, who is that movie star? And then suddenly we can look it up and we get this reward of, oh, random movie star. And then we forget it five minutes later. So that pull of getting information or wanting to know something to scratch that itch is all about deprivation. Oh, I don't know something. I scratch that itch and I feel better because I know it. Now, there's a feeling that comes with that that is very much like addiction, which is that urge. Oh, I want to know that information. So it feels restless. It feels contracted, closed down until we get that. I think of deprivation curiosity as destination. You know, once you get to your destination, that scratches, that itch is scratched, and then you're all set. That's very different than interest curiosity. Interest curiosity, in contrast to the destination, is about the journey. So you just get interested in whatever's happening. It doesn't matter what the result is. It doesn't matter if you find something out. It's just about that joy of discovery along the journey. And that's what mindfulness is all about, is that attitude of curiosity, like, oh, what does this craving feel like in my body? Or, oh, you know, what's my mind doing right now? That's the essence of mindful awareness, that, that attitudinal quality of curiosity. I love that so much. I reckon I could geek out with you for hours. That um, that is, I've never heard it. I've never heard that the the deprivation versus uh, interest curiosity, and it immediately makes sense. Um, and that interest going down the rabbit hole of interest curiosity, to an extent, the journey that I've been on, and kind of sharing you know on the show with with people like yourself. So really good way to um, to kind of conceptualize it. Uh, just a few more, a few more for you, and I want to go back to the COVID nineteen situation because it is so prevalent uh, prevalent right now. Uh, just mm -hmm. to give you an idea, uh, here in Australia, um, look, some parts are better than others. I'm based in Melbourne, Victoria, and uh, a little bit of a backstory without derailing too much. We, uh, of course, we're in we're in the thick of it, and then it seemed like we we're moving in the right direction, and then restrictions started to ease, um, and then long story short, that uh, that turned around and. The, the number of cases were on the rise again. And then we were uh, recently been put back into stage four lockdown. So this has kind of drifted on for a, a few months now. And it's been, it feels like almost forever since we've been able to go to, you know, to a restaurant or to a bar or even um, just go out and hang out with friends. So uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of a funny one here. So have you got any thoughts around um, the where to from here? And I suppose some examples of what people are, anxious about of course there's i think you touched on it at the start there's the fear with uncertainty is anxiety but then also adding in this uh, the social contagion i've heard you talk about as well so could you share some thoughts around that and and then maybe as well um 
how people start to get a bit of clarity around things like you know their their job, their income, their um, social interactions, things of that nature. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. And I think it's important to highlight how prevalent this is. There was a, a study actually that uh, Executive Health Solutions did. They partnered with ShareCare where they did this road ahead survey to understand mm-hmm. how employees and people felt uh, during these restrictions in Australia specifically. Now, I, I, if I remember correctly, it was something like two thirds of employees were worried about you know, COVID-19 and in particular worried about potential loss of employment, the pack. Uh, impact on their superannuation, you know, difficulty paying bills, things like that. So this is real for a lot of people. And I just want to highlight that, that, you know, if people are feeling like, oh no, this is about, you know, I might be alone in thinking this. No, you're not. <laughs> Every, everybody, yeah. everybody is worried about this. Um, so I think that's the first thing to, to understand here. The second thing to understand is, and this goes back to, you know, the, the combination of fear plus uncertainty leading to anxiety, right? So fear plus uncertainty leads to anxiety, but there's another piece to this. So if we are uncertain, our brain is going to naturally start to look for information. Now, why does it do that? Well, think of information as food for our brain because having information literally helps us survive. It helps us plan for the future. So if we don't have information, we're going to naturally get that urge, that itch, you know, it's related to this deprivation curiosity thing. We're going to have that itch to go find information. Now, where do we all go for information in modern day? Well, we go to social media, we go to our news feeds, we go to whatever. Now, the problem here is that not all news feeds are created equal. There's a lot of garbage (laughs) out there, especially if we're going on social media and trusting social media to give us news. And this is where a very important psychological concept comes in. It's called social contagion. Social contagion is basically just the spread of affect or emotion from one person to another. Now, importantly, you can prevent the spread of a virus through social distancing, but somebody can sneeze on your brain from anywhere in the world on social media. So if somebody, if you're going on social media looking for information and everybody's freaking out, Suddenly, you just caught that freakout bug from somebody, you know, didn't even have to be in Australia. It could be somewhere, anywhere, anywhere in the world. And so now when we're going on social media looking for information, now we're freaking out. And our, ironically, our thinking brain is going offline. So we can't actually differentiate what is good information or not. And when there's fear, you know, from a survival standpoint, our brain doesn't have time to make decisions. It says, oh, afraid, need to run. And so we just, you know, we just run. This is how mob mentality forms. So it's important to understand this and to see where we are going for our uh, information. <laughs> you know, are these sources accurate? Are they helpful? Or are we just going on social media and getting caught up in the worry bug? And getting stuck in that, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And just ca- getting caught, you know, endlessly scrolling. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a crazy time we're in. A crazy time. It is. And I suppose an- another challenge is I found anyway, and I, I don't know if you can talk to this uh, too much, but is that lacking of purpose, particularly if you've unfortunately, you know, lost your job. And I, I know um, in the States, that's been a, a big issue is, is the employment rate. Um, and that we're starting to see that here in Australia as well, particularly as it, uh, you know, the lockdowns continue. So, that, and then having that lack of purpose is another problem, which then probably 
leads us back to social media and then those habits, you know, reinforce uh, each other. And it's kind of a bit of a cycle that I would think is easier to get stuck in when you've got more time on your hands and we've got this social contagion. And it really is, you know, there's a lot of dangers outside of the virus itself. And I love how you shared the idea of um, yeah, sneezing on on someone else from a mile away. It's hard to dodge the, you know, the, uh, contracting the the disease of the mind i suppose with with social contagion so it's a, it's a tricky time and um i'm hoping people can get a lot out of this chat and i know they would already but uh yeah how's things in the state just to sort of derail a little bit where you are what's going on what's sort of the general consensus and and um feeling i suppose well to keep it brief <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> things are not going so well so sure. here's here's an example of not having a single movement, you know, like the federal government did not say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're all going to do this and we're going to go all in on this. There was a lot of, you know, hemming and hawing, a lot of disinformation that's been spread around, a lot of not trusting scientists, which is crazy because this right. is a scientific thing. It's not a political thing. Uh, so long story short, uh, you know, where we could have, I think, cut this way back and cut, you know, made it much shorter and all this, you know, we're still, we're still in the throes of it. Uh, and it's a, it's a great example of how, you know, social contagion can spread, you know, mm. disinformation. It can spread uh, lack of trust in, in a number of different ways when what we really need is strong leadership that really follows science, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm hoping people will go down that interest, curiosity rabbit hole with the spare time that they have <laughs> to have one, the sense of purpose, but then of course, to dive a little bit deeper into all this stuff that we're talking about. Um, while, while I've got you, I also want to talk about the idea of self-judgment as well. And I think it's a really, really important conversation to have. And I know you've, you've done some work around that too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and and my concern when we when, when this conversation comes up is that it gets thrown into the sort of the, the esoteric or intangible basket, um, and even a little bit woo woo to an extent. But I know there's a lot of science around it, and it, like I said, it's a very important conversation to have. So, um, firstly, like, what are your thoughts? Like, what's going on when we talk about self judgment, and what is the impact that that has on our well being? Yes, I, this is a really important question, and in fact, uh, there's a lot of science behind this. So we can we can draw this back from that realm of woo woo into hey, you know, we know a lot about yeah, yeah. scientifically. <laughs> so we can even start with this common mechanism of uh, reinforcement, and I see this in my clinic uh, all the time. So, for example, uh, I'm thinking of a patient with binge eating disorder, and she, you know, is not very happy with uh, with her physical appearance. And so she would look in the mirror, that would be a trigger. Then she would get this, you know, negative feeling and start to judge herself for, you know, being the way that she, uh, you know, looking the way that she did. And ironically, as a way to numb herself from those emotions, and she literally said, this is how I numb myself, she would binge, you know? Mm -hmm. And so binge eating was actually feeding this cycle of unhealthy eating that was even, you know, continuing her, uh, her weight gain, for example. So, you know, same trigger behavior result pattern happens with self-judgment. Some negative emotion comes in, we judge ourselves, and then, you know, there's this result of doing something, you know, like beating ourselves up, and that feels better than doing nothing. So same mechanism here. 
And in fact, the same brain regions get activated when people are judging themselves, when they're not nice to themselves, uh, this default mode network. And my, my lab's actually done research with uh, the antidote to self-judgment, which is, which is basically self-kindness. There's a meditation called loving kindness meditation, which I thought for the record was pretty woo-woo when I first started it. But then, <laughs> then I started practicing and I, was, and I realized, wow, this is pretty powerful. You know, I would, yeah. I, so as an example, I would ride my bicycle to the hospital when I was training in, in residency training to be a, a physician. And when cars would honk at me for whatever reason, uh, I used to get angry at them and, you know, give them the universal sign of displeasure. I'm sure you have that in Australia, right? Oh, and, oh we definitely do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we would, you know, I would get angry and I would get to the hospital all, you know, worked up. And then I was realizing, wow, this is not a good mind space to be in as I'm seeing patients. So I started practicing this loving kindness where I would just, you know, somebody honked at me, that would be my mindfulness bell to offer myself a phrase of loving kindness, like, you know, may you be happy and then silently offer it to whoever honked at me, like, may you be happy. And mm. I, I realized that that felt so much better than, you know, like getting in front of them or, you know, doing whatever that just pissed us both off. And in fact, I'd get to the hospital and feel much better. So long story short, uh, my lab actually studied the neural mechanisms of this. So we had a bunch of experienced meditators come in, practice loving kindness. We taught novices uh, the same practice because it's relatively easy to do. Uh, yet we found very, very different brain activity patterns as experienced versus novice meditators were meditating. And lo and behold, the self-referential brain region that gets activated when we get caught up in anger, or caught up in worry, or caught up in self-judgment gets really quiet when we're practicing loving kindness meditation. So a whole lot of science uh, linking up these mechanisms from behavior to brain. I love that. Yeah, that is huge. And I've found as well to that point that um, doing something similar actually is, uh, and those, those meditative practices, I've found that over time, uh, in addition, even just the even just knowing that I have the I guess the discipline to to do that practice enhances um, my my view of myself, I suppose. So this mm -hmm. idea of like you know how I feel about myself when I'm by myself is is like a guiding light and a north star. I've found that even just taking the time out every day or at least most days to practice gratitude, um, kind, uh, kind uh, meditations like you touched on there and kind of sending out good vibes to the world, however you want to uh, describe that. I found just the, the very act of doing that and knowing that I do that has made me feel good about myself. And that's something that I, I talk to people often as well, uh, just with friends and family. And I found that's had a massive impact on how I see myself. So I hope people take good note of that. Well, this also goes back to this reward value thing. So mm. you tell me what feels better when you're beating yourself up or when you're kind to yourself? Absolutely. When I'm kind to myself and it feels great. Yeah. So I call this the BBO, the bigger, better offer. So as we start to pay attention, when we practice gratitude or kindness and we realize, wow, this feels pretty good. And we compare that to what it feels like when we're being mean to ourselves or when somebody's being mean to us, it's a no brainer. Our brain starts saying, well, I'd rather, you know, kindness, please. <laughs> I'll have another. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it becomes a natural inclination. We naturally move in that direction. So imagine if everybody in the world just practiced a little bit of kindness toward themselves, towards somebody else, and importantly, paid attention to what that felt like. Just imagine how that could literally change the world. 
So do you think that is, if you had to, and I'll, I'll wrap this up because I, I know you're, you're a busy man. And again, I really appreciate you carving out the time for, for us all here. Um, but would you say that that awareness is almost the takeaway, if anything, from this chat is, is being really present in the moment and appreciating um, whether it's the, the goodness that comes from meditative practice or the, or the bad stuff that comes from a poor habit you're trying to break. Um, I mean, I, I won't put words in your mouth. What's sort of the parting message that you'd have for people listening? <laughs> yes, I would say number one, awareness. And number two, awareness. And then number three, awareness. And that all goes back to noticing what it feels like when we're curious versus when we're not curious. Noticing what it feels like when we're kind versus when we're not kind and simply mapping out these habit loops in our own minds. You know, when am I getting caught up in a certain behavior? What am I doing to trying to force myself to change it versus simply noticing what it feels like when I do it and when I when I don't do it? So here, you know, we started this conversation around, you know, pandemics. Right. And so we've all been trying to flatten the curve of this covid-19 infection. Well, how about this? You know, let's unflatten the curve of curiosity and kindness and see if those can spread in the same way, in in a way that will help us all be more connected, be more curious and um, and be more kind to ourselves and others. I'm very happy to champion that course with you. Great. So where can people connect with you and hear more about your work? I've got a website, drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com, that uh, we've got a bunch of uh, informational videos and animations and things on there. I've also put out a bunch of videos on my YouTube channel, which is also Dr. Judd, D-R-J-U-D. So those are the two places where folks can get more information. Uh, they're interested in learning about the apps that I talked about. I talk about those on there as well as, as well as my first book. Fantastic. Again, appreciate the time and I learned heaps. I know people listening did as well. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you did enjoy it, if you got some sort of value from the episode, please do us a favor and subscribe to the channel. We've got lots more to come and share it with your friends and family. It all helps our mission of raising a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So please share the podcast and I look forward to sharing more with you on another episode.